This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. Welcome to Best Practice on RN Summer. Over the coming weeks, we'll bring you some of the highlights of the year. And one of my favourite interviews was with one of the world's leading thinkers on creativity, Sir Ken Robinson. His TED Talk on the subject is the most watched TED Talk ever. So creativity at work can be put in an odd box. We value it because it leads to real improvements in products and services and in productivity. Most workplaces will tell you that they want it. Some will say they foster it, but few are actually any good at doing this. We're also a bit intimidated by creativity. There's still a tendency to see it as the province of the brilliant and possibly difficult individual. That's mostly not how it works at all, but it's hard to shake as an idea. So how does Ken Robinson describe it? Well, I define it in a very particular way as the process of having original ideas that have value. Uh, and all three bits of that matter to me. It is a process. It, it's not always an event. I mean, that's to say ideas are often shaped as you work on them. It, it's unusual for a whole concept to come you know, un- sort of completely formed and without need for any further work. It's about originality. It doesn't have to be original to the whole of the, of the human race, but it certainly has to be at least new to you. And it's about value, uh, always wrapped up in creative processes or critical judgments about whether what you're producing is worthwhile or is any good, whether it, it makes the cut. So it's those three things about uh, having original ideas that have value. I'm wondering how many creative people actually don't understand their own process. It's, for them, it's a sort of tacit thing. They're just, they are good at it, but they've never really thought about how they do it. I think that's right. I think there are two aspects to it. A lot of people think they're not creative. I mean, you only have to ask a room full of adults if they think they are, and it's remarkable how few really do think they have creative capacities. I think there are reasons why people think that. I think they're wrong, but there are good reasons why they should think that. But it's also true that, that if you speak to a lot of people who do creative work in whatever field, often they they find it difficult to articulate quite how they do it and and sometimes they don't really want to talk about it you know in in case it uh, sort of queers the pitch yes you can imagine people thinking well i've been doing all right by not overthinking this i'm certainly not going to overthink <laughs> it now well that's right that is sometimes true you, you people can become too self-conscious about about what they do you know the philosopher michael polanyi uh, years ago made a distinction once between focal and subsidiary awareness. And he's saying that no matter what you do, you have to be aware of what you're doing at various levels. And so he said, for example, if you're knocking a nail into a piece of wood, the focus of your attention is on the head of the nail, and it, and it needs to be. But in a secondary way, in a subsidiary way, you're also aware of the arc of your arm and the weight of the hammer. Uh, and you have to have it that way around. You need to be aware of that too. But if you suddenly start thinking about your arm and what it's up to, and take your attention away from the nail, you'll probably miss it. Mm, and hit and your thumb. I, yeah, so that's right. <laughs> that's right. It's like if you're playing the piano, if, if, you're, if you're a competent pianist, then you'll be thinking about the music, not so much what your fingers are doing. But if you suddenly start looking at your fingers and think, what's going on here? Uh, it's quite likely you'll, you'll start to, to miss the music. 
So it's getting things the right way around. And you're right, I think for some people, they don't really want to talk about how they do it uh, because it might just sort of destroy the magic elixir for them. But, but that said, I think when it comes to education, it's very important to understand in general terms how creative processes work so that we can help people to become better at them. Yeah, and I do want to get onto that, but I was just thinking it's it must be 12 years or so since your TED Talk. Are people taking creativity more seriously now? Oh, some definitely are, yes, I, I think so. And uh, it's always hard to quantify these things. I mean, there are some numbers. I mean, for example, that talk I gave in 2006 is still the most popular TED Talk, and it's been viewed online, I think it's over 51 million times now. And I know it's been seen by a lot more people than that because it gets shown at conferences and events and workshops and meetings. So I don't know, you could you know, make up a multiple, maybe 10 times that number of people who've seen it. Uh, I get asked to talk about these things a lot. There's a growing literature around these things. I mean, the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, last year uh, produced their own report on uh, the, on education and the workforce in which they gave a very prominent place the importance of promoting creativity. I mean, that's a first for them, I think. Uh, yeah, and yes, you do see the term coming up a lot more in conversation. People do take it seriously. I mean, I wouldn't put it all down to a talk I gave in 2006, but I think I did help to draw attention to these ideas. And I do know from my own experience how interested people are and engaged in them. And I, I do think that interest is growing. Yeah. All right. Well, how can how can people become more creative at work? Well, the key thing to begin with is to understand what creativity is and how it works. And when I said earlier that a lot of people think they're not creative, it's because, in my experience, there are lots of misconceptions about what it is. I mean, for example, if you ask people if they think they're creative, they'll often say they're not. I mean, adults will say that. Children don't say that, but adults will. And I think it's because what they think you've asked them is if they're artistic. And so one of the misconceptions is that creativity is associated with particular activities like the arts. I mean, the arts can be very creative. Of course they can. But it's it's a mistake, in my view, to conflate creativity with the arts because you can be creative at anything. You can be creative at mathematics, in science, in technology, in business, in, in management, in running a home and and planning and making meals. Creativity is a function of intelligence and it's possible anywhere where intelligence is being used or or applied. So that's the first thing. At work, it's important to realize that everyone has creative capacity and not just the people in the so-called creative departments. Another is that people associate creativity with certain sorts of people or personalities and and people may feel well, that they don't really have that personality, and so they're not terribly creative. And, but you know, but it's, being creative isn't about your hairstyle or, you know, or your style of dress. It, it's about an attitude and a disposition to the work that you're doing. And a third misconception is that people think that, well, there's not much you can do about it. You're either born creative or you're not, and that's the end of it. And a lot of work I've been doing has been to argue to the contrary that you can help people to become more creative. So I think overall the problem is that the is that there are these misconceptions and what I've been arguing for is that you can make creativity an operational idea and the challenge in businesses is to create a culture where that will happen. Well, yes, and a big part of it is going to be getting around what you've just described. If you're yeah. encountering a, a people who are already grown-ups, they're not children, 
They've got a degree, they may, many of them have been to graduate school, and they are used to thinking about themselves in a certain way. And mm-hmm. that way does not include being creative. There's a lot of work to be done in saying, well, hang on, no, you actually are. Well, that's right. And it is recognizing that creativity is possible in everything that we do and that people are often much more creative than they imagine. Now, I, I published a book a number of years ago, uh, we talked about it last time, called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. And that was looking at how when people discover the, the, the range of their talents and perhaps the talents that distinguish them most, how those people then find that they become capable of all kinds of things they hadn't previously imagined or become conscious of the fact that they're being creative in ways they hadn't thought about. So to me, a, a lot of it is getting people to align themselves differently with the idea of creativity and also to recognize that if you're a human being, it comes with the kit. I was talking to somebody earlier about this, that our family has just welcomed our first grandchild. You know, She's now a month old and like every newborn, she has immense natural capacities, but you have to develop them. I mean, you could go through your entire life and never discover the things that you're really good at or the full range of your talents. So yeah, part of it, I, I, I know in businesses, is to get people to understand a bit more about how creativity operates and, and how it isn't confined just to this or that activity. Yes, and actually having a culture that not just tolerates it, but fosters it and encourages it. Yes, well, that's also part of the trick, Richard, because people talk a good game about creativity, but often they're really rather nervous about it. One of the reasons is that people often, much as they talk about the need for change, feel a bit nervous and resistant to change. And sometimes it's in the nature of things that since creativity is about having original ideas, that new ideas are challenging. They can confront the status quo, they can involve taking risks, they can make people nervous. And so there are all kinds of cultural reasons why people talk about creativity being a good thing in organizations, but then feel nervous about actually cultivating it. From everything I have learned and talked to people in startups, I'm wondering if they might be the place that does this best, because they often make a fuss about being able to tolerate failure. And a lot of coming up with ideas, well, you're going to come up with a lot of bad ones. Well, inevitably, yes. One of the people I worked with a number of years ago was a, a wonderful man, Professor Sir Harry Croto, who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Uh, I didn't, I hasten to point out, but, but he did. And uh, I asked him one day during some work we were doing together how many of his experiments failed. And he said, well, I should think about 90% of them, uh, perhaps more. He said, but, you know, uh, failure isn't really the word when you're doing scientific research. I mean, what you're discovering is what doesn't work. And hopefully you'll find out what does work earlier rather than later. But you may have to go through all kinds of iterations before you discover the thing that you're really looking for. And that's true in every field. I mean, if you're composing a piece of music or coming up with a business plan or, or trying out a new recipe or designing a building, uh, creative work in any field is, is inherently a process of trial and error. So it will include all sorts of mistakes and false starts and cul-de-sacs, and that's just the nature of it. Uh, but that isn't something to resist. It's something to understand and to embrace and then to create circumstances where failure is, you know, is tolerated. I mean, for example, there's a, a great organization uh, based in Northern California called IDEO, and they do a lot of work with organizations on product development. And part of their process is rapid prototyping, you know, trying things out, seeing what works, scrapping it if it doesn't, moving on to the next thing. 
that's part of the process and people need to understand that. Of course, when you say that it involves taking risks, some people in positions of leadership may start to shudder and think, well, we don't really want to be taking too many risks just now. So part of the culture of innovation in organizations is to understand what your tolerance for risk really is. I mean, you, you don't want people betting you know, the, the entire company on one idea necessarily, although there have some, been some examples of that. So it's about innovation and, and taking risks in, 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 a, in a space that you feel comfortable with. You're listening to Best Practice on RN Summer with me, Richard Aidey. My guest is Sir Ken Robinson, one of the world's leading thinkers on creativity. Ken, your research is, there's now three areas to it, I understand. I just want to walk through them briefly. One of them is about the technological revolution and creativity. Is there a concern that, I suppose, the power that technology gives us means that we don't have to think in the same way? There's some truth in that, clearly. I mean, I was thinking recently about this in relation to the arc of my own life and work. When I was born in 1950, and the rate of technological change since then, of course, has been exponential. When I was doing my graduate work in the 70s, I used to go down to the library, and I mean, I'm, I'm delighted to say we still have libraries, but it was the only way to get hold of information at the time, and now... I can sit here at my laptop and, and search pretty much every library in the world and all the resources that may be available there. I mean, if I was better at it, using the laptop, I could search much further than I actually do. So there are tremendous tools out there. Absolutely there are. I mean, I published a magazine in the, in the 80s that then it took us a month to produce it. And now any 10-year-old could do it on the laptop in about half an hour. You know, I'm a great fan and advocate of the Beatles, you know, it's because I grew up in Liverpool in, in the 1960s. And... Uh, I mean, if you look at the studio facilities they had when they were working on their albums, uh, they are primitive compared to garage band that sits on most people's desktop these days. It still doesn't make people capable of producing Sgt. Pepper, by the way, on the desktop, because you have to be good at music to do that. Well, yeah, and I'm wondering Um, about something else, Ken. Sorry to interrupt, but I'm wondering if the very limitations that they were grappling with actually forced that creativity to flourish. I've talked to architects over the years who've said, actually, it's when the site is difficult and the budget's limited that you get something amazing. That's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the, just take that example of of the Beatles, a lot of the innovations they came up with were the consequence of wrestling with the constraints that they faced. That's right. That's why I'm saying that, you know, the fact that we have these tools at our disposal doesn't in, in itself make us produce work of outstanding quality that, that would please us you know producing creative work is a conversation between the, the materials and the technology and your own imagination and the garage band doesn't in itself produce the music you know we have to do that i mean i've had a word processor for years you know but i still haven't produced a novel that i'd be interested in publishing you know but ian McEwen has you know and he's produced quite a few of them as a consequence so that they are what they, what they seem to be. They are tools, but they're wonderful tools. And learning to how to use the tools is a big part of, of helping to enhance and develop people's creativity. But it isn't about freedom of constraints either. As you say, a, a creative work in any field is, is often a, a dance between freedom and constraint. I was writing recently about you know, the moonshot in the early 1960s when President Kennedy announced that America's commitment was to put a man on the moon. And it was a man they had in mind by the end of the decade and to bring him back safely to earth. Well, I did that, actually did it with a, with a year to spare. But that commitment 
unleashed the most extraordinary collaborative uh, effort of creative work that brought together hundreds of thousands of people and hundreds of organizations across America and internationally to solve this compelling challenge that he'd thrown down. And what interests me about it was that the process of the Moon program, uh, the, the Apollo program in particular, led to numerous innovations in all kinds of uh, areas of technology and in science and, and also in, in managing systems. Uh, and it came about because of the constraint, uh, not in spite of it. I mean, it, it didn't happen that the scientific community and the other people who supported them said to the president, look, we'll do this. Say, Actually, it's a great idea, but is there any chance you could move the moon a bit closer? You know, that, that would be a lot easier. <laughs> like, like even halfway would help. You know, it, it's not the absence of constraint. I mean, it's, it's, it's an old maxim, as in most areas. I mean, there's very little new under the sun in this respect. You know, the necessity is the mother of, of invention, and it proves to be the case in, in many areas. So it's, it isn't that technology uh, makes us creative, but it can facilitate it in all kinds of ways. But we still have to understand its, its potential, its limitations, and have that conversation between us and our, and our own ideas. Well, speaking of necessity being the mother of invention, I know one of your other real concerns is, is shifts in the world's population and the sort of unsustainable level of demands that we have on the Earth's resources. There's some very big, perhaps existential problems to be solved there. You would think that would spark some more creativity. Well, I, I think you're right. Uh, I, I do think it's an existential problem, uh, li literally so. I mean, the, we're, we're facing massive challenges uh, in our ability to sustain our populations into, through food and water and energy. All the evidence is if we continue along the same path that we're on now, then, then we're heading for an abyss. At the same time, we've created a lot of these problems and we're capable of solving them. There are several people out there who've written very well and wisely about all of this. I mean, Peter Diamandis and Ray Kurtzfeil, who set up the Singularity University, for example, have, have written very optimistically about the capacity we have to develop technologies that will solve these problems. Peter's book, Abundance, was published a few years ago, and it sets out a very practical series of ideas for how we, we not only can, but in some ways are now, able to solve the problems of water supply through desalination, how... We can look at alternative systems of food production. There are all kinds of ways in which these problems are soluble. Whether we have the political will, whether we have the cultural vision to really pursue these and to give the resources that are needed to solving these problems remains to be seen. Ken, you, you've been involved with education for a long time and you've also pointed out that children who are starting school this year will finish in 2031. And we know, although we're very loath to admit this, that really we're not very good at forecasting even five years out. How important a role is creativity and fostering creativity in those children going to play to kind of equip them for the world of 2031? Well, you know, you mentioned that TED talk I gave in 2006, and I remember saying that during the talk that nobody knew then what the world would look like in five years' time, that's to say in 2011. You don't have to be a soothsayer to be able to say these things. Clearly, it was just a matter of observational fact. It's interesting, for example, that the first uh, smartphones uh, didn't appear till 2007. You know, the iPhone was introduced in 2007. And just look at how mobile technologies have transformed our entire way of life in the intervening few years. 
And we're now sitting pretty much at the dawn of the real impact that's being foreseen of, of artificial intelligence, of AI and robotics. I mean, that's been brewing for a long time, but it looks set to take off in completely unexpected ways. So, I mean, creativity, of course, is a driver of all of these uh, areas. And helping to develop our creative capabilities, I think, is a very big part of the challenge that we now face in education. We have done for a long time. I'm always very keen to say, though, that it's not all about creativity. I, I published a, a book a couple of years ago called Creative Schools, and I was keen to say there that creativity is one of a set of competencies that they're connected, but it, it's not as if it, it, it alone uh, is what stands between, between us and, and a future that we can't control. Uh, there are lots of other cap capabilities too, and it's very important, for example, that we develop powers of critical thinking, which are part of, of any creative enterprise. We need to develop powers of collaboration, of compassion, and of communication. There are all kinds of competencies which are essential to promote through education alongside creativity. I think it's reassuring that certainly some schools and an increasing number of universities are actually saying critical thinking is what we're going to teach you. We're going to make you work in teams with people mm -hmm. who are from a completely different background. They're doing a different degree and ask you to solve a problem. So I think there's some realisation that this stuff is really important. Yeah, you wonder why it's taken people so long to figure this out, don't you, really? <laughs> But that's right. I mean, our education systems are still predicated on a rather narrow conception of subjects. And, and it's true even in, in universities that, uh, and perhaps it's been increasingly true, that when people sign up for a degree, that's, that's what they do. But most of the world's problems reach into all kinds of different areas of disciplinary expertise. And innovation, more often than not, comes from people working across disciplines or, or seeing opportunities to connect with people in different fields. A lot of our education systems for a long time have been driven by ideas of competition. I'm not anti-competitive. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which competition can be a great spare to achievement. But it's equally important that we should promote collaboration. It's how we learn. I mean, when I talk about the growth and development of young children, I mean, most children in ordinary circumstances will quite uh, readily learn to speak in the first few years of life. But they won't if, if, they're, if they're not exposed to human company. They learn it from the people around them. Learning is a very social process. It's imbued with all kinds of cultural influences and habits as well. We live as human beings in highly complicated urban settings uh, and our global systems are deeply intricate and they all work through collaboration. They, they don't work if we cease to collaborate and work together. Collaboration is the very heart of the sustainability and nature of human societies. And it's right that we should have these practices being cultivated in our education systems. And it's curious to me that we don't and that you even have to argue for them. I can't finish without asking you about your own life. I mean, you contracted polio at four. Mm -hmm. And it was a teacher who kind of set you on the path to finding your own element. As in most things, it's a combination of factors. But yes, there's no question of that. In uh, my family's view, I mean, there's a bit of a premature judgment, I feel, looking back. But up until the age of four, they thought I was destined to be a professional soccer player. I used to run around, was very fit and strong, and uh, we lived right in the shadow of Everton's football ground in, in Liverpool. Goodison Park. Um, I'm a Toffees fan, sadly. Good man. Go on. Good man. I know that this is going to sever us from a lot of our audience at this point, but yes, I'm with you. <laughs> I grew up right in the shadow of Goodison Park. In fact, my brother played for Everton for several seasons. But yeah, I mean, I got polio, and uh, it was during the great epidemics of the early 1950s, and 
you know, people didn't have very great expectations for, for kids in, in those circumstances. But a school inspector visited my school. I was in a school for the physically handicapped, and he spotted something in me and spoke to the head teacher, and one thing led to another, and I was moved up several classes and fell into the hands of a wonderful teacher called Miss York, who was a bit of a tartar, frankly. I mean, she didn't brook any nonsense from any of me or anybody else, but she was an inspirational teacher. She helped me to get ready for the 11 plus, and I took it, and I was the first one and only one at that time in the school to pass it. And I was on my way with a lot of encouragement from the family and lots of other people. But yes, there were several educators who were absolutely critical in my, in my own life and the course that it's taken. I would never do anything other than praise the importance of teachers and their powerful influence on, on the lives that we come to have. One of the world's leading thinkers on creativity, Sir Ken Robinson. You'll find details on the Best Practice homepage at abc.net.au slash national. The program's produced by Murata Dias. Our sound engineer is Jennifer Parsonage. I'm Richard Aidy, and I'll bring you more highlights from the year next week here on RN Summer. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.